There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. This is Mr. Henry Corwin, normally unemployed, who once a year takes the lead role in the uniquely popular American institution, that of the department store Santa Claus, in a road company version of The Night Before Christmas. But in just a moment, Mr. Henry Corwin, ersatz Santa Claus, will enter a strange kind of North Pole, which is one part the wondrous spirit of Christmas and one part the magic that can only be found in the Twilight Zone. Alright guys, Happy New Year and welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host Jimbo and today in the Southern Layer Studios I have my good friend and co-host... ADZ here on in the Southern Layer yep. and happily uh, trying to run off a couple episodes here. Glad you know, to be back. Christmas may be over, but unfortunately due to time, sickness, situation, circumstances, work... Uh, this happened to fall after New Year's. We tried to get it out before uh, Christmas, but it just was not to be. So this is basically the Twilight Zone's version of a Christmas story. Right. So. You get an extra week of Christmas. That's, that's all right. <laughs> we should have just waited till July to do this Christmas yeah. in July. Right. So, Eric, here we go. The Twilight Zone, The Night of the Meek, season all two, right. episode number 11. All right. The Night of the Meek. This is The Twilight Zone, season number two, episode number 11. It was directed by Jack Smite. And it was written by Rod Serling, and it was produced by Buck Houghton. The original air date was December the 23rd, 1960. And as regard to that particular date, we got a little segment called... On This Day in History! Alright, so on this day... Well, actually, not in 1961, but December 23rd, 1938. This relates to TV and film history. Uh... It relates to, more specifically, The Wizard of Oz. In 1938, Margaret Hamilton's costume catches fire while filming The Wizard of Oz in 1938. So, yeah, she suffered some severe burns. Yeah, that was, a, that was a pretty uh, significant um, issue there. I think it had to do with the paint. Or, wait, was it the, the makeup, right? And the paint, it had like well, some no, kind well, of that, flammable but, substance in it, maybe? Right, and then when she goes down in the uh, at the beginning of Munchkin Lane, when she goes down that mm-hmm. trap door, it like, didn't get down in time or something and caught her on fire. But also, I read recently that the green makeup that she had to wear, that it kept her skin colored green for several oh, weeks wow. after that as well. So oh, wow. we've come a long way with makeup and special effects. Yeah. For the record. So there you go, 1938. There's your On This Date in History. So moving along off of the original air date for this particular Twilight Zone, which, again, was December the 23rd, 1960, the total production costs way down for this episode at $10,349 and 61 cents now jimbo you may have different figures uh as related to the resource material that you have but i went ahead and adjusted that for inflation and that adjusts to one hundred and four thousand ninety four dollars and 35 cents 
uh, in I adjusted it for 2023 since we are in 2023 oh. now, and that's about a, a 905 percent increase um, for that episode. Um, if you don't have any other figures, Jimbo, you oh, I have figures. You oh, okay. Figures? Go ahead and throw those in, and then maybe take this all-star cast. Right. So the date of rehearsal was November 22nd, 1960. So it looks like they only had one day of rehearsal. And the dates of the filming was November 26th and 27th, 1960. Uh, the script was dated for September 12th, 1960. And the revised script dated November 24th of 1960. So some other financial numbers. The producer and secretary was $2,143.84. The director got a measly $399.20. <laughs> Story and secretary was $2,510. The cast, Eric, how much do you think the cast got paid? Uh, I'm going to say... Under four thousand dollars. Oh, way under four thousand. Way under. Right. You got another guess? No. Nine hundred and eighty-eight dollars and nine cents. How much of that went to Art Carney? I wonder because it was I top billing. I mean, right? I, I would assume. Uh, production yeah. fee was eight hundred twenty-five dollars. The legal and accounting was two hundred fifty dollars. Below the line charges or other was one hundred thirteen dollars and ninety-three cents. Agents commission was two thousand five hundred dollars. Below the line charges for CBS was six hundred nineteen dollars and fifty five cents, and the total production cost, as Eric said, was ten thousand three hundred and forty nine dollars and sixty one cents. So, as we know, this is another videotaped episode, right. and this exactly. is what CBS wanted to do. They wanted to cut production costs, and uh, as you can tell by this, they actually trimmed probably about thirty to forty thousand dollars off with this episode. Yeah, I have some figures. I'll, I'll see if I can dredge them up, but I think overall, with all, I think there were six episodes, maybe mm-hmm. five. But in the total in the total cost of what they were trying to save over the the course of all of those episodes, they really didn't save all that much money. Now they might have saved a lot on this particular episode, but on the whole, it, yeah, it, it, they didn't save a whole lot of money in, in the final analysis. And I think Rod really he doesn't have a lot of good things to say about this episode. But uh, yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, yeah, the, the way down on cost production costs in this uh, episode. But uh, Jimbo, you want to take the cast, and I'll try to I'll try to find that in my book, my resource material about. Absolutely. Um, so as Eric stated, the main uh, character in this episode is Art Carney. He plays Henry Corwin. Um, you may most famously remember him from The Honeymooners, where he played Ed Norton. But there's also a couple of movies and another TV series that I'd like to point out. Yes, in Batman 66, Eric, for two episodes, he played the Archer. Really? He was yes, in that? He was okay. in that. He was also in Harry and Tonto in 1974. He was in Firestarter, where he played Ian, uh, Ian Manders. Then he was also in Last Action Hero, where he played Frank. So there's some other movies that you may know him for. Next, we have John Fiedler. He played Mr. Dundee. Uh, Eric, you may remember him from the movie 12 Angry Men, where he played juror number two, one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah. He was in True Grit, where he was Lawler Daxton. Uh, sorry, my handwriting is a little Daxton. He was in The Odd Couple, where he played Vinny. And Eric, he has the voice of one of the most famous cartoon characters of all time. What cartoon character was he? Do you happen to know? I do not. I don't. He is the voice of guess. Piglet in oh, The okay. Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. So... That's John Fiedler. Then we had Robert Lieb. He played Flaherty. Uh, he was in Mystery Men in 1999. Val Avery, he was the bartender. Uh, he was in the Amityville Horror. He was also in Cobra, if you remember that Sylvester Stallone movie. Yeah, yeah. And he was also in The Magnificent Seven in 1960. You had Meg Wiley, uh, whose sister Florence. 
Uh, she was in The Last Starfighter from 1984 where she played uh, Granny Gordon. And there's a bunch of other people in here that are just uncredited. Yeah, um, there's a pretty large cast. Yeah, there's a large episode. cast. I mean, it's it's two pages long. I'm not going to go into all that to save some time. So uh, that is your cast. Well, you for, can't forget. I got to just throw this guy in here. Burt Mustin, the old man. Because he was in a lot of, uh, well, I know him from Andy Griffith's show, but he, he played the, the Of course man. you do. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, yeah, he he played a, well, he's I think he's credited as the old man. Yeah, he But is. I think uh, Henry Corwin calls him Bert in the episode, towards the end of the episode. Right. I do have these figures. I found the figures. I don't know if it makes a difference or not, but I have total cost per report. For this episode was ten thousand three forty nine and sixty one cents, which we mentioned beforehand. But then I have a line that says total cost as adjusted after CBS billing of forty nine thousand one fifty three, and then for the episode static uh, thirty two two eighty six and sixty six cents for total cost, and then total cost after adjusted. I don't know what the difference between total cost. And total cost after adjusted CBS billing, but there are two line items. But for all six episodes, those—I mean—the difference between the two numbers is not very vast. No, it is for this episode ten thousand and forty-nine thousand. That's that's a big difference. But the for the rest of the episodes, they're they're all pretty much the same. And we don't really have time to dig really deep into why that is, but. I, I know that I've read several accounts that said the overall cost was not worth the, you know, it wasn't the headache. Worth, yeah, the headache, exactly. It wasn't worth uh, what all they had to do to try to cut corners. So uh, moving along, let's go on with the plot. I think that's our, our next step here. Henry Corwin is a down-and-outer who is normally unemployed and who definitely drinks too much. Every year he works as a department store Santa Claus. This year, however, he has spent uh, just a little too much time in the bar and is quite drunk by the time he shows up for work. He's fired, of course, and deeply deeply regrets what he has done. In fact, Henry has a big heart and worries not only about the children he's disappointed at the store, but about all the children who will not get what they've asked for for Christmas. And when he comes across a large bag of gifts, everything changes for the kids and for himself as well. So, um... There you go, as, as far as a plot uh, line is concerned. One of my one of my favorite episodes uh, thus far, as far as uh, the Twilight Zone is concerned. And again, I don't think Rod, and it is in my notes, he didn't think very highly of it. But I think it stood the test of, the test of time, and it's kind of on my regular rotation of watching every year. Um not yours. He's get, Jimbo's giving me a, a, a trash. It's trash. Okay. Instead of Night of the Meek, it should have been called Night of the Week. Is what uh, I'm saying. What do you think of that? Okay. Wow. Controversial. <laughs> um. So we open up the the first kind of scene is a storefront, and I have some trivia. Jimbo, anything anything off top? Uh, not not particularly off top. Uh, of course, you see the great. Um, you know, I, as I was watching this movie, or sorry, this episode, um, I kept, I like, I know this voice. I know this voice. And now that I 
finally figured out it's Piglet. <laughs> you know, that's all I can hear. Oh, now. right. So now all, yeah. that's all you can decipher. Um, here it is. I have this in this opening scene. Uh, I have some trivia as it pertains to it. It says CBS did not have all the required props to create the illusion of a department store. So many of the toys and decorations were brought in from the outside. All of the reindeer were furnished by Santa's Village, located in Skyfrost, California, a 25-acre theme park that was in its third year of business. The reindeer cost Cayuga, Cayuga and CBS no funds. The arrangement granted Santa's Village an on-screen credit during the closing of the episode. The trains that Corwin wrecks were supplied by the Lionel Corporation. Now, of course, that's a long-standing model train. Well, you know, uh, also the model train is also the one used in the Adams family. So, no, I didn't know that. Yep. Um, so there was they were supplied by Lionel under the same arrangement. So it didn't cost the it didn't cost them any money, but they just got free publicity basically. In the Do you episode. think that in the opening scene where the kids are sticking their face onto the window looking at our car? Do you think that's a throwback to Night or uh, the Eyes of the Beholder? Because they kind of got the pig nose. Up there. <laughs> yeah. The, the yeah. Right. <laughs> I'll say this about Art Carney. I think he plays the best on-screen drunk. Yeah. He, I, mean, I can't think of anybody He did a good better. job. I can't say nothing bad about him. Yeah. He did a good job. So after the department store uh, scene, we shift to the bar scene, and we meet our our number one character, Henry Corwin, and he's sitting at the bar, and he's dressed in a shabby Santa Claus outfit. And uh, Rod has something to say about that. He says this in, in some trivia. He says, I generally deal with people who are underdogs. Serling explained to columnist Stephen Stroman, social underdogs, professional underdogs, and political underdogs. I've been fortunate in TV and utilizing this theme, but the strange or the novel is by far the most legitimate area for this kind of telling. I got the idea for this one, speaking of this episode, by watching a Santa Claus parade with my two kids a year ago and noticed that on the Santa Claus float, the worthy gentleman chose, chosen for the role must have had a last minute and at least a third string replacement. Serling explained to the columnist for TV Guide, he weighed just a few pounds more than Slim Somerville, and his Santa Claus suit must have been dredged out of a canal someplace. <laughs> it suddenly came to me that perhaps there is a story lurking somewhere in the whole concept of these guys who play Santa Claus for a living. And then I started to conceive of the tale... Uh, what would happen uh, to an Eristas Chris Kringle if he had suddenly found out that he was Santa Claus? So that's kind of the genesis of how Rod came to uh, create this, um, or write down and create a story for this episode. Not so much like did the, you later, ever, the later movie, Bad Santa. And <laughs> in, your, in your notes, did you ever uh, find out what they used for snow in this episode? I couldn't find it. No, but I think, like, for... Other TV shows, I know it's they a, use soap at some. Yeah, time. it's like a combination or, of that and fans, and and also asbestos in some of the yeah, older older yeah, movies. Yeah, right. Uh, no, I didn't find out any uh, trivia as it pertained to the. But you could tell, even as he's a drunk, that he cares for the kids. You know, what I mean, his heart's just broke for the kids. Yeah, that's a really touching scene. Um, the, the kids, I thought that they played a great part too. Uh, yeah, I mean, you really believe. Uh, in these initial opening scenes, I mean, they look the part like they're down and out and destitute kind of kids that mm -hmm. live in a, a boarding house. And, and uh, yeah. And then uh, we we come to Rod's narration after we 
we see Henry Corwin meet with the kids on the street and they're asking Santa, you know, they're telling them him what they want for Christmas. And then we come back uh, after Rod's opening narration. We come back into the store and Henry kind of stumbles in late and uh, starts playing with those Lionel trains and then, <laughs> you know, accidentally breaks one. They're pretty cool trains. I wish I had one. And runs one of the trains off the track. And then I think in the next scene we meet uh, the original Karen of sorts, I guess. I hate using that term, but the mom who's mad because <laughs> yeah. Santa's drunk and, you know, he, he she's got like this, you know, uppity proper kid who kind of sits down and, you know, asks Santa, you know, tells Santa what he wants for Christmas. And then we come to the great, I think I have it written down here too. Just jump in anywhere, Jimbo, if you have anything that sticks out to you. But uh, this great line here, I, I have it at the end, but it's a great piece of dialogue. And, um, yeah, I was just going to read it. When he's confronted about his drinking and th this mother uh, sort of calls out Santa Claus for his being drunk on the job. So Percival Smithers. Yeah, is that his name? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but he says this, he says, I can either drink or I can weep and drinking is so much, so much more subtle. But as to my insubordination, I was not rude to that woman. Someone should remind her that Christmas is more than barging up and down department store aisles and pushing people out of the way. Someone has to tell her that Christmas is another, another thing finer than that, richer, finer, truer, and it should come with patience and love and charity and compassion. And that's what I would have told her if you'd given me the chance I don't know how to tell you, Mr. Dundee. I don't know at all. All I know is that I am an aging, purposeless relic of another time, and I live in a dirty rooming house on a street filled with hungry kids and shabby people where the only thing that comes down the chimney on Christmas Eve is more poverty. Do you know another reason why I drink, Mr. Dundee? So that even when I walk down the tenements, I can really think it's the North Pole and the children are elves and then I'm really Santa Claus, bringing a bag of wondrous gifts for all of them. I just wish, Mr. Dundee, on one Christmas, one only, that I could see some of the hopeless ones and the dreamless ones. Just on one Christmas, I'd like to see the meek inherit the earth. And that's why I drink, Mr. Dundee, and that's why I weep. So I thought that was probably the, the, the crux line of the whole episode right there. Um really pulls out your heartstrings and you really feel for Henry Corrin. And yeah, again, just a testament to Art Carney's performance. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of the high point for me, I guess, in the episode is his delivery of that, that line. And anything else you got? Well, I mean, you know, the title is based upon the biblical quote of Matthew yep. 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they yeah. shall inherit the earth. So, um, I think it pretty much ties into the story pretty well. Um, if you if you read that and, and know what that is, mm -hmm. um, let me. I don't know that I have anything as far as this particular part. Well, uh, I will throw this in here that this isn't Carney's first exposure to a Rod Sterling teleplay. Mm -hmm. uh, two years previously, they uh, Carney starred in the Velvet Alley for Playhouse ninety, which. 
I believe it's the next episode or the one after that. I dove into a little short thing on the Playhouse 90 to tell everybody what that is because I did not know what that was. But yeah, it's coming up. I never over seen and over. it either. So uh, we'll get into that in a future episode. Uh, but they told the in store story of a television writer who fought his way from starvation through the Hollywood jungles inhabited by insidious agents, gutless producers, and passionate party givers to reach the oasis of a Bel Air mansion. Compete, uh, complete with swimming pool. Along the way, Sterling's writer lost his integrity, his friends, his wife, and his soul. Uh, this episode also reunited Sterling and Carney with director Jack Smite from the same Playhouse 90 telecast, uh, who most recently directed Carney during his summer stock tour in the Seven Year Itch, and was also the director of Full Moon Over Brooklyn, the final show in the series of Art Carney specials the previous season. So, Sterling did admit to a reporter for the Hammond Indiana Times, Eric. Mm-hmm. So, that much of the material in the Velvet Alley was autobiographical. Mm-hmm. How else can a writer write from a learned knowledge? Of course, I drew on my own experience as a television writer in molding the characterizations and plot of the teleplay. So, now here's a little something that talks and that speaks. I said earlier that he didn't think very. Speaking of Sterling, he didn't think very highly of the episode. But let me read this on uh, December twelfth, nineteen sixty. Sterling wrote to Owen Kamora of Y&R explaining that the Christmas show instead of being the sheer delight I had hoped it would be turned out to be an inconsequential nothing and I rather think it will be a terrible disappointment to you. Serling's major source of disappointment was that the production had been done on videotape instead of filmed. Soon after the viewing the final cut Serling remarked Christmas this Christmas offering was an abomination and looks for all the world like a rough dress rehearsal that is a couple days from coming around. Today, however, the episode is favored by many fans of the television series and for some tradition to view in their living rooms every holiday season, but not for Jimbo. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, we already talked about the props. Uh, here's another... I hate using this term again, but here's another Karen of sorts. Let me read this. On December the 30th, Miss Marilyn Lister of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, wrote to Sterling expressing her disappointment (laughs) in the Christmas show. I enjoyed the plot, but there were several details of it that I disliked. The one thing I disliked most was the portrayal of the woman at the mission. I think your characterization of this woman was in bad taste and completely unfair to the people who dedicate their lives to helping men and women who are down and out. You could have very very easily changed this part of your show without harming the story. Why was it so necessary to put this woman at the mission in a bad light? And so once again, we see a Rod Sterling apology coming. Yeah, so he responded on February the 7th. Sterling offered his belated apology. He assured her that it was not his intention to portray the character of the, mission, uh, character of the missionary in any unfavorable light. Ours is to, never the job to knowingly offend, and I think you read something into the characterization that was not there. I would have no reason whatsoever to slight the men and women who do spend their lives helping others. So there again, someone, maybe an oversensitive viewer that had to, to write yeah, in. I just, I mean, it's a character. Uh, yeah. Well, Serling's Serling. I'll, I'll read this too, because this ties in. <laughs> so this was not Serling's first exploration to a Christmas drama. Mm-hmm. While he wrote a number of them during his radio career, one radio play never got produced. Are you ready for this one? No Christmas this year, 1949 to 1951, told the tale of a civilization that dispenses with Christmas. 
No one knew exactly why this was so. They just knew it was happening, and the mayor of the town claimed someone high up was responsible for the decision. Santa up at the North Pole has his own problems. The elves are on strike. The factory no longer manufactures <laughs> yeah. toys. Uh, they produce crying gas, heavy bombs, fire bombs, and atomic bombs. <laughs> Worse, he's been shot at when he flies over Palestine and China. Um, one of these elves got hit by shrapnel over Greece. When Sterling wrote The Night of the Meek, he fashioned the character for Mr. Dundee and Sister Florence from characteristics of the radio script. So I, I want to hear that. I got to hear that. Uh, that sounds <laughs> intriguing to me. Right, yeah. but I mean... Here's here's the lady now. Here's the, uh, the missionary lady who's... In the mission, she has to be kind of to rough with people. I mean, look at this bunch. Look at this rowdy bunch. <laughs> There's a bunch of drugs over there. Yeah, I mean, of course, he's going to have to be stern with them. But yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I won't belabor that point. But uh, here's the information that I was trying to find earlier. L- listen to this small piece of trivia here. It says because of the cost of overruns, uh, there were six consecutive episodes including this one, that were videotaped and then transferred to 16-millimeter film for TV. We've talked about that at some length. Uh, for broadcast and future syndication and rebroadcast, it saved, now get this, it saved only about $30,000 for all six episodes. Not enough to justify the loss of depth of visual pers- perspective, which gave those shows an appearance like a live broadcast or like soap operas uh, of the day. This was an experiment for a normally uh, filmed TV show and was basically called a failure. They never did that kind of recording again for any more of the Twilight Zone episodes, thankfully. So that was not repeated because it was <laughs> but not you, you you wonder, um, it was so popular that why CBS tried to decide to do some cuts. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, were they just trying to look to save money? You know, you know, big corporations, man, save the almighty dollar. Yeah, it's it's difficult, probably too, in the arts. I mean, they're gonna, you know, for whatever reason, big corporations don't want to spend money on on things of that nature. But uh, near the end, Cor, uh, Corwin Santa is sitting on the steps of the mission, talking to the character in the credits. I talked about this earlier. Uh, Listed in the credits as simply old man. However, he addresses him twice as Bert. So that's a Bert. Uh, what's his name? Bert Minton. Yep. So that was actually his name too. Jimbo's already talked about the biblical quote of Matthew five five, and blessed are the meek. Uh, Art Carney and John Fielder would go on to appear on the Broadway on Broadway as Felix Unger and Vinny in the original production of the Odd Couple. Odd Couple, right? So. Uh, Art Carney would later play the role of Santa Claus in the film entitled The Night They Saved Christmas in 1984. Not Ernest Saves Christmas, but The Night They Saved Christmas. <laughs> Did you happen to notice the sign in the in the mission? No. Look, look it says, love thy neighbor. <laughs> love I thy see neighbor. it right there? As she's yelling. Yeah, at as she's yelling. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. But here's something else, too. In December of 1964, Stephen Bobbins of the Eugene A. Ty school in Margate City, New Jersey, wrote to Serling, here we go with another letter, Okay, thanking him for the wonderful story which the kids decided to put on stage. Oh, yeah, yeah. I Traditionally, the school put on a Christmas carol, but that changed in December of 1964 when the Night of the Meek was loosely adapted at a junior high level for stage production. Upon learning of the school's achievement, uh, Serling on Christmas Eve 1964 wrote to Mr. Bobbins, I'm delighted that the Night of the Meek was done by your class, and I hope it gave pleasure. 
All writers have pets amongst their output, and this story is my special one. Yeah. So can you imagine us pulling that off when we were in grade school? Yeah, that's, that's a monumental task, especially when it was that new. Right. And trying to work out all the, the kinks and stuff. Especially having like a, a, a little fifth like grader that. trying to portray a drunk. <laughs> yeah, that sounds funny. Although we do, we might have video footage of Eric pulling off Hu Fung Chow. From <laughs> Hopefully not. Um this is this is one of the parts that I like too, where the bag keeps changing back and forth from can, <laughs> they get cans just and Christmas cans. gifts. Yeah, and uh, what's his name, Mister Dundee, asked for a rare type of brandy or whatever yeah. from Santa Claus, and he pulls it out. I thought that was I thought that was kind of neat. Pulls out the cat too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, when this episode was originally telecast in 1960, Sterling's closing narration featured a final line not featured on the commercial VHS or DVD releases. Uh, and a Merry Christmas to each and all. This final line was removed from certain prints and reruns and is rarely seen. So that's kind of a shame. Yeah. Um, so we're closing in. I think that's all as far as trivia is concerned from from my end. We can close in on the... Right. So basically he's been arrested and uh, they take him down there and they, they said they, they accuse him of stealing from the department store. And he's like, where else would he get all these gifts? Mm-hmm. But they, as we know, they go in there, the, the police and, and the, the uh, store owner, I guess, just keeps pulling out those cans. And they put in there. He's like, look, we can't keep him. So then, you know, he says, well, what do you want? And he pulls out that wine, you know, and, and they're like, I don't believe it. Hey, come to my house. It's on me or whatever. So you see him going outside and he's, he's asking the kids what they want. One's like, I want a baseball bat. I want a dolly. Yeah, this is cool right here. Where yeah. he's just handing He's just out. reaching in there and pulling out whatever yeah, they want. whatever they want. Yeah, that's really cool. And then Rolbert comes out with his smoking jacket and pipe because that's <laughs> what he got in the mission. And they sit down on the stoop. As before mentioned, they have a, a brief conversation. And then Henry sort of strolls across the street and runs <laughs> into a sleigh. With reindeer and an elf jumps out from behind a trash <laughs> that can. That was so right ridiculous. <laughs> Wasn't it? You don't like that? It's so ridiculous. <laughs> uh, so, so in the final analysis, basically, Henry becomes Santa Claus. Uh, because that is his his because that's what Bert asked him what was his greatest wish and and Henry says well I think I I got my wish my wish was to give everybody what they wanted for Christmas and just to see when he's going off it's like jumping around he's over and over dramatic about it I mean it's ridiculous it really is that's yeah, a Twilight Zone <laughs> so but then you have uh, the two walking out and they see the basically the shadows of the reindeer going over him hearing yeah. the bells and he's like. Did you see? <laughs> yeah, right did you here. see what I saw? Yeah. He's like, uh, you better come over to my house. We'll pour pour you a cup too. Basically, yeah, some more brandy or whatever he was drinking, cherry or whatever liquor he was drinking. Yeah. So, um, just in the final analysis, into into wrap up, I guess in my questions and observations uh, segment, I think that Henry Corwin was the meek in this episode, and he just wants to bring joy to others. That, in fact, is his wish. And it is subsequently granted as he becomes Santa Claus. So that's kind of the kind of the gist. Of course, the, the meek aren't just restricted to him. I think the uh, the kids and everyone who received the Christmas gift. But just by way of observation, if you go back to the beginning of the episode, Bruce the bartender misspells Mary 
as M-E-R-Y on the mirror, if you remember. He takes the shaving yeah. or whatever. He spells it M-E-R-Y in the mirror behind the bar instead of M-E-R-R-Y. Just an, another observation, I think. This, yeah, but he left his Santa bag there, too. Oh, yeah. And then I think it goes back to Rod at the, at the end. Yeah. It has a lot of, for me, it has a lot of It's a Wonderful Life feel to it. It, it definitely it, it became one of my favorites. Is it the best Christmas story ever told? No, but it's the Twilight Zone. It's hard to incorporate sci-fi and Christmas, I guess, to me. I, I don't know. But uh, I think Art Carney's magnificent in it, and I'm always good. Ever since I've seen it, I think two years ago, three years ago, I saw it for the first time, it's going to be in my Christmas time rotation. So, Eric, what are, you, what are you rating it? Let's get down to the the nuts and bolts of it, baby. What are you going to rate this episode? Seven. Give it a seven, huh? Maybe seven uh, and a half. I gave it a six. Okay. And, and tell and me why. I think a big part of the reason is the way it was shot. Yeah. Um, if it yeah. would have been on a regular, what well, you're used to, Twilight Zone, it probably would have been a seven and a half, like where you put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it just took me out of it. You know what I mean? Uh, from early on, right? Uh, R. Carney did a fabulous job, but some of the over the top acting. You know, it was just too much. Just couldn't get over the piglet. Just, just too much. Yeah, the piglet. No, he was probably the best part. Like I said, it was a, should have been called Night of the Week instead of Night of the Meek. <laughs> I was going to write a uh, poem, one of Eric's famous poems, but I, oh, but I didn't get to it. I, I, I thought it would have been funny. You're letting me down. I know, I know. Maybe, maybe in a future episode. But The Night um, of the Week. I will say this. At this point of Season 2, I believe Season 1 is killing Season really? 2. Really? Killing it. Okay. I, I only, honestly, the only one that I thought was probably upper echelon was probably Eye of the Beholder. I think that had the classic Twilight Zone twist. And I'm talking, you know, we're, we're talking the Howling Mans in this season. Uh, that stupid, whatever we covered with the stupid, uh, what's his name? Uh, William Shatner. Yeah, oh, that was terrible. Nick of Time. Oh, Terrible, that a great episode. Ter- that was terrible, <laughs> man. I, I should have wrote a story about that one, but um, yeah. So, and and you know what? I'm I'm a little bit uh, further ahead in season two now than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's season one. I think just holds a special place in my heart. So, you got anything else, Eric? No, I don't think I. I don't think I have anything um, else as far as. Uh, let me look and see. I don't think I have any observation. No, I just. I do think it was a good episode. Probably better than, than what you thought. Uh, I would agree definitely with the videotaped. Um, the fact that it was on videotape was not great. Um, I I just prefer that they would have done them all in 35 millimeter. But I know that uh, what's done is done. Um, I guess. Moving on to the next episode. I don't know that it's going to get much better. Oh, uh, oh, oh. For our next episode is Dust. It's entitled Dust. Terrible. You didn't like it either. That is terrible, well, too. we'll get to that one. But the one after that's really good, I think. So, well, if you'd like to follow us on social media, we are the Tragedy Cinema Podcast on Facebook. Uh, if you'd like to email us, thetragedycinema at gmail.com if you want to leave us a review. And also, this is the first time I believe I'm announcing it on the podcast coming May 20th. 2023, we will be with Hillbilly Horror Stories and Middle Aged and Creeped Out for a live show at the Haunted Boone County Jail in Lebanon, Indiana. So look for tickets on the Facebook uh, page. Um, I'll give more detail on our 
uh, regular episodes. So be on the lookout for that. Well, Eric, happy new year. Back to be back in the saddle. Let's get this thing on a roll. And that's a wrap. And cut. A word to the wise to all the children of the 20th century, whether their concern be pediatrics or geriatrics, whether they crawl on hands and knees and wear diapers or walk with a cane and comb their beards. There's a wondrous magic to Christmas and there's a special power reserved for little people. In short, there's nothing mightier than the meek. And a Merry Christmas to each and all.